This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter. April 2007. Summer by Edith Wharton. Chapter 12. One afternoon, toward the end of August, a group of girls sat in a room at Miss Hatchard's in a gay confusion of flags, turkey-red, blue-and-white paper muslin, harvest sheaves, and illuminated scrolls. North Dormer was preparing for its old home-week. That form of sentimental decentralization was still in its early stages, and, precedents being few, and the desire to set an example contagious, the matter had become a subject of prolonged and passionate discussion under Miss Hatchard's roof. The incentive to the celebration had come rather from those who had left North Dormer than from those who had been obliged to stay there, and there was some difficulty in rousing the village to the proper state of enthusiasm. But Miss Hatchard's pale, prim drawing-room was the centre of constant comings and goings from Hepburn, Nettleton, Springfield, and even more distant cities, and whenever a visitor arrived he was led across the hall, and treated to a glimpse of the group of girls deep in their pretty preparations. "'All the old names, all the old names,' Miss Hatchard would be heard, tapping across the hall on her crutches. "'Target, Solas, Fry. This is Miss Orma Fry sewing the stars in the drapery for the organ-loft. Don't move, girls. And this is Miss Allie Hawes, our cleverest needlewoman.' and Miss Charity Royal making our garlands of evergreen. I like the idea of its all being homemade, don't you? We haven't had to call in any foreign talent. My young cousin Lucius Harney, the architect, you know he's up here preparing a book on colonial houses. He's taken the whole thing in hand so cleverly. But you must come and see his sketch for the stage we're going to put up in the town hall. One of the first results of the old home-week agitation had, in fact, been the reappearance of Lucius Harney in the village street. He had been vaguely spoken of as being not far off, but for some weeks past no one had seen him at North Dormer, and there was a recent report of his having left Creston River, where he was said to have been staying, and gone away from the neighborhood for good. Soon after Miss Hatchard's return, however, he came back to his old quarters in her house, and began to take a leading part in the planning of the festivities. He threw himself into the idea with extraordinary good humour, and was so prodigal of sketches, and so inexhaustible in devices, that he gave an immediate impetus to the rather languid movement, and infected the whole village with his enthusiasm. "'Lucius has such a feeling for the past, that he has roused us all to a sense of our privileges.' Miss Hatchard would say, lingering on the last word, which was a favourite one, and before leading her visitor back to the drawing-room, she would repeat, for the hundredth time, that she supposed he thought it very bold of little North Dormer to start up and have a home-week of its own, when so many bigger places hadn't thought of it yet, but that, after all, associations counted more than the size of the population, didn't they? And, of course, North Dormer was so full of associations, historic, literary, here a filial cipher honorius, and ecclesiastical. He knew about the old pewter communion service imported from England in 1769, she supposed, and it was so important, in a wealthy materialistic age, to set the example of reverting to the old ideals, 
the family and the homestead, and so on. This peroration usually carried her halfway back across the hall, leaving the girls to return to their interrupted activities. The day on which Charity Royal was weaving hemlock garlands for the procession was the last before the celebration. When Miss Hatchard called upon the North Dormer maidenhood to collaborate in the festal preparations, Charity had at first held aloof, but it had been made clear to her that her non-appearance might excite conjecture, and, reluctantly, she had joined the other workers. The girls, at first shy and embarrassed, had puzzled as to the exact nature of the projected commemoration, had soon become interested in the amusing details of their task, and excited by the notice they received. They would not for the world have missed their afternoons at Miss Hatchard's, and, while they cut out and sewed and draped and pasted, their tongues kept up such an accompaniment to the sewing-machine, the charity silence sheltered itself, unperceived, under their chatter. In spirit she was still almost unconscious of the pleasant stir about her, since her return to the Red House, on the evening of the day when Harney had overtaken her on her way to the mountain, she had lived at North Dormer as if she were suspended in the void. She had come back there because Harney, after appearing to agree to the impossibility of her doing so, had ended by persuading her that any other course would be madness. She had nothing further to fear from Mr. Royal. Of this she had declared herself sure, though she had failed to add, in his exoneration, that he had twice offered to make her his wife. Her hatred of him made it impossible, at the moment, for her to say anything that might partly excuse him in Harney's eyes. Harney, however, once satisfied of her security, had found plenty of reasons for urging her to return. The first, and the most unanswerable, was that she had nowhere else to go. But the one on which he laid the greatest stress was that flight would be equivalent to a vowel. If, as was almost inevitable, rumours of the scandalous scene in Nettleton should reach North Dormer, how else would her disappearance be interpreted? Her guardian had publicly taken away her character, and she immediately vanished from his house. Seekers after motives could hardly fail to draw an unkind conclusion. But if she came back at once, and was seen leading her usual life, the incident was reduced to its true proportions, as the outbreak of a drunken old man furious at being surprised in disreputable company. People would say that Mr. Royal had insulted his ward to justify himself, and the sordid tale would fall into its place in the chronicle of his obscure debaucheries. Charity saw the force of the argument, but if she acquiesced it was not so much because of that as because it was Harney's wish. Since that evening in the deserted house she could imagine no reason for doing or not doing anything except the fact that Harney wished or did not wish it. All her tossing contradictory impulses were merged in a fatalistic acceptance of his will. It was not that she felt in him any ascendancy of character. There were moments already when she knew she was the stronger, but that all the rest of life had become a mere cloudy rim about the central glory of their passion. Whenever she stopped thinking about that for a moment, she felt as she sometimes did after lying on the grass and staring up too long at the sky. Her eyes were so full of light that everything about her was a blur. Each time that Miss Hatchard, in the course of her periodical incursions into the workroom, dropped an allusion to her young cousin, the architect, the effect was the same on Charity. The hemlock garland she was wearing fell to her knees, and she sat in a kind of trance. 
It was so manifestly absurd that Miss Hatchard should talk of Harney in that familiar, possessive way, as if she had any claim on him, or knew anything about him. She, Charity Royal, was the only being on earth who really knew him, knew him from the soles of his feet to the rumpled crest of his hair, knew the shifting lights in his eyes, and the inflections of his voice, and the things he liked and disliked, and everything there was to know about him, as minutely and yet unconsciously as a child knows the walls of the room it wakes up in every morning. It was this fact which nobody about her guessed, or would have understood, that made her life something apart and inviolable, as if nothing had any power to hurt or disturb her, as long as her secret was safe. The room in which the girl sat was the one which had been Harney's bedroom. He had been sent upstairs to make room for the home-week workers, but the furniture had not been moved, and as Charity sat there she had perpetually before her the vision she had looked in on from the midnight garden. The table at which Harney had sat was the one about which the girls were gathered, and her own seat was near the bed on which she had seen him lying. Sometimes, when the others were not looking, she bent over as if to pick up something, and laid her cheek for a moment against the pillow. Towards sunset the girls disbanded, their work was done, and the next morning at daylight the draperies and garlands were to be nailed up, and the illuminated scrolls put in place in the town hall. The first guests were to drive over from Hepburn in time for the midday banquet under a tent in Miss Hatchard's field, and after that the ceremonies were to begin. Miss Hatchard, pale with fatigue and excitement, thanked her young assistants and stood in the porch, leaning on her crutches and waving a farewell as she watched them troop away down the street. Charity had slipped off among the first, but at the gate she heard Allie Hawes calling after her, and reluctantly turned. "'Will you come over now and try on your dress?' Allie asked, looking at her with wistful admiration. "'I want to be sure the sleeves don't ruck up the same as they did yesterday.' Charity gazed at her with dazzled eyes. "'Oh, it's lovely,' she said, and hastened away without listening to Allie's protest. She wanted her dress to be as pretty as the other girls, wanted it, in fact, to outshine the rest, since she was to take part in the exercises, but she had no time just then to fix her mind on such matters. She sped up the street to the library, of which she had the key about her neck. From the passage at the back she dragged forth a bicycle— and guided it to the edge of the street. She looked about to see if any of the girls were approaching, but they had drifted away together toward the town hall, and she sprang into the saddle and turned toward the Creston Road. There was an almost continual descent to Creston, and with her feet against the pedals she floated through the still evening air like one of the hawks she had often watched slanting downward on motionless wings. Twenty minutes from the time when she had left Miss Hatchard's door, she was turning up the wood road on which Harney had overtaken her on the day of her flight. And a few minutes afterward she had jumped from her bicycle at the gate of the deserted house. In the gold-powdered sunset it looked more than ever like some frail shell dried and washed by many seasons. But at the back, whither Charity advanced, drawing her bicycle after her, there were signs of recent habitation. A rough door made of boards hung in the kitchen doorway, and pushing it open she entered a room, furnished in primitive camping fashion. In the window was a table, also made of boards, with an earthenware jar holding a big bunch of wild asters, 
Two canvas chairs stood nearby, and in one corner was a mattress with a Mexican blanket over it. The room was empty, and leaning her bicycle against the house, Charity clambered up the slope and sat down on a rock under an old apple tree. The air was perfectly still, and from where she sat she would be able to hear the tinkle of a bicycle bell a long way down the road. She was always glad when she got to the little house before Harney. She liked to have time to take in every detail of its secret sweetness. The shadows of the apple trees swaying on the grass, the old walnuts rounding their domes below the road, the meadows sloping westward in the afternoon light, before his first kiss blotted it all out. Everything unrelated to the hours spent in that tranquil place was as faint as the remembrance of a dream. The only reality was the wondrous unfolding of her new self, the reaching out to the light of all her contracted tendrils. She had lived all her life among people whose sensibilities seemed to have withered for lack of use, and more wonderful at first than Harney's endearments were the words that were a part of them. She had always thought of love as something confused and furtive, and he made it as bright and open as the summer air. On the morrow of the day when she had shown him the way to the deserted house, he had packed up and left Creston River for Boston. But at the first station he had jumped on the train with a handbag and scrambled up into the hills. For two golden, rainless August weeks he had camped in the house, getting eggs and milk from the solitary farm in the valley, where no one knew him, and doing his cooking over a spirit lamp. He got up every day with the sun, took a plunge in the brown pool he knew of, and spent long hours lying in the scented hemlock woods above the house, or wandering along the yoke of the Eagle Ridge, far above the misty blue valleys that swept away east and west between the endless hills. And in the afternoon, Charity came to him. With part of what was left of her savings, she had hired a bicycle for a month, and every day after dinner, as soon as her guardian started to his office, she hurried to the library, got out her bicycle, and flew down the Creston Road. She knew that Mr. Royal, like everyone else in North Dormer, was perfectly aware of her acquisition. Possibly he, as well as the rest of the village, knew what use she made of it. She did not care. She felt him to be so powerless that if he had questioned her she would probably have told him the truth but they had never spoken to each other since the night on the wharf at Nettleton. He had returned to North Dormer only on the third day after that encounter, arriving just as Charity and Verena were sitting down to supper. He had drawn up his chair, taken his napkin from the sideboard drawer, pulled it out of his ring, and seated himself as unconcernedly as if he had come in from his usual afternoon session at Carrick Fry's and the long habit of the household made it seem almost natural that Charity should not so much as raise her eyes when he entered. She had simply let him understand that her silence was not accidental by leaving the table while he was still eating, and going up without a word to shut herself in her room. After that he formed the habit of talking loudly and genially to Verena whenever Charity was in the room, but otherwise there was no apparent change in their relations." She did not think connectedly of these things while she sat waiting for Harney, but they remained in her mind as a sullen background against which her short hours with him flamed out like forest fires. Nothing else mattered, neither the good nor the bad, or what might have seemed so before she knew him. He had caught her up and carried her away into a new world, from which, 
at stated hours, the ghost of her came back to perform certain customary acts, but all so thinly and insubstantially that she sometimes wondered that the people she went about among could see her. Behind the swarthy mountain the sun had gone down in waveless gold. From a pasture up the slope a tinkle of cowbells sounded, a puff of smoke hung over the farm in the valley, trailed on the pure air, and was gone. For a few minutes, in the clear light that is all shadow, fields and woods were outlined with an unreal precision. Then the twilight blotted them out, and the little house turned grey and spectral under its wizened apple branches. Charity's heart contracted. The first fall of night after a day of radiance often gave her a sense of hidden menace. It was like looking out over the world as it would be when love had gone from it. She wondered if some day she would sit in that same place and watch in vain for her lover. His bicycle bell sounded down the lane, and in a minute she was at the gate, and his eyes were laughing in hers. They walked back through the long grass and pushed open the door behind the house. The room at first seemed quite dark, and they had to grope their way in, hand in hand. Through the window frame the sky looked light by contrast and above the black mass of asters in the earthen jar, one white star glimmered like a moth. "'There was such a lot to do at the last minute,' Harney was explaining, "'and I had to drive down to Creston to meet someone who has come to stay with my cousin for the show. He had his arms about her, and his kisses were in her hair and on her lips. Under his touch things deep down in her struggled to the light and sprang up like flowers in sunshine.' She twisted her fingers into his, and they sat down side by side on the improvised couch. She hardly heard his excuses for being late. In his absence a thousand doubts tormented her, but as soon as he appeared she ceased to wonder where he had come from, what had delayed him, who had kept him from her. It seemed as if the places he had been in, and the people he had been with, must cease to exist when he left them, just as her own life was suspended in his absence. He continued, now to talk to her volubly and gaily, deploring his lateness, grumbling at the demands on his time, and good-humouredly mimicking Miss Hatchard's benevolent agitation. She hurried off miles to ask Mr. Royal to speak at the town hall to-morrow. I didn't know till it was done. Charity was silent, and he added, After all, perhaps it's just as well. No one else could have done it. Charity made no answer. She did not care what part her guardian played in the morrow's ceremonies. Like all the other figures peopling her meagre world, he had grown non-existent to her. She had even put off, hating him. "'Tomorrow I shall only see you from far off,' Harney continued. "'But in the evening there will be the dance in the town hall. Do you want me to promise not to dance with any other girl?' "'Any other girl? Were there any others?' She had forgotten even that peril, so enclosed did he and she seem in their secret world. Her heart gave a frightened jerk. Yes, promise. He laughed and took her in his arms. You goose, not even if they're hideous? He pushed the hair from her forehead, bending her face back, as his way was, and leaning over her so that his head loomed black between her eyes and the paleness of the sky, in which the white star floated. Side by side they sped back along the dark wood road to the village. A late moon was rising, full-orbed and fiery, turning the mountain ranges from fluid grey to a massive blackness, 
and making the upper sky so light that the stars looked as faint as their own reflections in water. At the edge of the wood, half a mile from North Dormer, Harney jumped from his bicycle, took Charity in his arms for a last kiss, and then waited while she went on alone. They were later than usual, and instead of taking the bicycle to the library, she propped it against the back of the woodshed and entered the kitchen of the red house. Verena sat there alone. When Charity came in she looked at her with mild, impenetrable eyes, and then took a plate and a glass of milk from the shelf and set them silently on the table. Charity nodded her thanks, and sitting down fell hungrily upon her piece of pie and emptied the glass. Her face burned with her quick flight through the night, and her eyes were dazzled by the twinkle of the kitchen lamp. She felt like a night-bird suddenly caught and caged. "'He ain't come back since supper,' Verena said. "'He's down to the hall.' Charity took no notice. Her soul was still winging through the forest. She washed her plate and tumbler, and then felt her way up the dark stairs. When she opened her door, a wonder arrested her. Before going out she had closed her shutters against the afternoon heat, but they had swung partly open, and a bar of moonlight crossing the room rested on her bed and showed a dress of china silk laid out on it in virgin whiteness. Charity had spent more than she could afford on the dress, which was to surpass those of all the other girls. She had wanted to let North Dormer see that she was worthy of Harney's admiration. Above the dress, folded on the pillow, was the white veil which the young women who took part in the exercises were to wear under a wreath of asters, and beside the veil a pair of slim, white, satin shoes that Allie had produced from an old trunk in which she stored mysterious treasures. Charity stood gazing at all the outspread whiteness. It recalled a vision that had come to her in the night after her first meeting with Harney. She no longer had such visions. Warmer splendors had displaced them. But it was stupid of Allie to have paraded all those white things on her bed, exactly as Hattie Target's wedding dress from Springfield had been spread out for the neighbors to see when she married Tom Fry. Charity took up the satin shoes and looked at them curiously. By day, no doubt, they would appear a little worn, but in the moonlight they seemed carved of ivory. She sat down on the floor to try them on, and they fitted her perfectly, though when she stood up she lurched a little on the high heels. She looked down at her feet, which the graceful mold of the slippers had marvelously arched and narrowed. She had never seen such shoes before, even in the shop windows at Nettleton. Never, except, yes, once, she had noticed a pair of the same shape on Annabel Balch. A blush of mortification swept over her. Allie sometimes sewed for Miss Balch when that brilliant being descended on North Dormer, and no doubt she picked up presents of cast-off clothing. The treasures in the mysterious trunk all came from the people she worked for. There could be no doubt that the white slippers were Annabel Balch's. As she stood there staring down moodily at her feet, she heard the triple click-click-click of a bicycle bell under her window. It was Harney's secret signal as he passed on his way home. She stumbled to the window on her high heels, flung open the shutters, and leaned out. He waved to her and sped by, his black shadow dancing merrily ahead of him, down the empty moonlit road, and she leaned there watching him till he vanished under the hatchard spruces. End of chapter 12